Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have uh, granted us the privilege of coming together again to study your word. Thank you for the words of the Psalms and the Psalmists of the way in which you put words into our mouths, into our thoughts as well, to express both our needs and your salvation and our gratitude for your salvation. Guide us now in our study that uh, you may teach us to sing rightly, both in times of distress and of joy. And always to uh, putting our hope in your faithfulness. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, Psalm 4. Uh, oh, sorry, Barbara, I thought you said 40. No, four. Oh. No, no zeros. No. Uh, just Psalm 4. Uh, Psalm 4 uh, is a psalm that is quite familiar to us because it is one of the traditional psalms for Compline. So we uh, frequently uh, sing Psalm 4 or speak Psalm 4 uh, in Compline. And it is an evening psalm. Uh, although it doesn't say that it is. So um, <clears throat> before we read it, uh, just a little bit of uh, background. Psalms, the Psalms, uh, particularly the opening Psalms, are really sort of knitted together. Uh, they, they fall in a, in a very particular order. So Psalm 1 is like a heading for the whole book of Psalms. Uh, Blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of the wicked. And he, uh, who walks not rather in the counsel of the wicked, I beg your pardon. Blessed, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So it's an ex extolling of those who walk in the way of the Lord, as opposed to those who walk in the way of wickedness. And, uh, and, and the key is in verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So it's the blessing that comes on those who meditate on and live by the law of the Lord. And remember, the law here doesn't mean the law. It means the instruction of the Lord. So it means the whole of the word of God. Um, and the blessing is, is like a tree planted by the waters. It's this idea that you flourish and, and are established. That's Psalm 1, and it sets the tone for the whole of the book of Psalms, Psalm 1. Psalm 2 is the first royal psalm, uh, and it is a psalm uh, that declares that the king, the house of David, that is, is, um, uh, is established by God himself, and that the king is God's son. And it has, a, a, if you like, a, a, both a spiritual and a political uh, significance in the time of the kingdom of the old covenant, kingdom of David. And of course, it is fulfilled in a particular way in Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. But within the book of Psalms, you've got these two things. You've got the blessing for those who live by the word of God. And then there's the promise of God that he will bless King David and his descendants uh, as his own Jew. And, and that they will therefore, their enemies will be overcome. Now, that's followed immediately by... A series of psalms of lamentation, which is a surprising twist. Uh, you know, a straight, a straight away we come to the psalms of lamentation. But the first psalm of lamentation is Psalm 3, which is a psalm of David. 
So it's immediately after the Psalm 2, which establishes the first royal psalm, messianic psalm, we have a psalm, first psalm of David. And it is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So to, re to remind you, uh, although I have no doubt that you remember, King David's son Absalom rebelled against his own father and tried to usurp the kingdom. Yeah. And for a time, David fled, had to flee from Absalom, who entered Jerusalem and, um, and who, um, uh, for a time, looked like was going to be established. But David managed to flee, and that led to a civil war at the end of which uh, David uh, was victorious. David's armies were victorious. Absalom was killed and David's kingdom was established. But so the psalm, the psalm, uh, third psalm is written at the time when David is fleeing from Absalom. And he escapes by the skin of his teeth, as it were. It's, it's a very close escape. And uh, this is a morning psalm. So if I just read it, uh, and listen to <coughs> Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter up of my head. I cried about, aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. So there's the enmity of people, specifically Absalom and his, uh, his followers, and the faithfulness and salvation of God, uh, and David's confidence that God will protect him which in the light of Psalm 2 makes perfect sense that it is, it's laid here. But you see there's that I lay down and slept, I woke again for the Lord to sustain me. So, which is why it's thought that this is a, a, like a morning, morning psalm, psalm for the morning. And you can see, you know, David fleeing from, from uh, Jerusalem with his family and with his, with his uh, band of followers. And they just about make it away, go to sleep, exhausted. And when he wakes up in the morning, he said, no, God, the Lord has sustained me. We're still here. He's still faithful. So that's before Psalm 4. Whereas Psalm 4 uh, doesn't, it, it's also a, a Psalm of David, doesn't have a temporal indication, doesn't tell us when it was written. But if when we read Psalm 4, you will see that it's very similar in key, in key ways to Psalm 3. So there's good reason to suppose that it might have been written around the same time, or at least it's a very similar situation. And it, its tone um, and, and the wording suggests that it's an evening psalm. So in the Psalm 3 was for the morning, Psalm 4 for the evening, which is one reason why it is uh, one of the psalms that is sung at Compline at the end of the day. So that's just by way of, uh, of brief background. Uh, some of this... It, um, uh, we, we will kind of uh, draw some of those uh, parallel similarities as we go along. But for now, um, <clears throat> we need to just read the psalm. Uh, Rosemary, could you read the first uh, four verse, uh, three verses? Uh, Carol, would you read the second half from four to the end? Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. 
Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honour be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry, but sin not. Commune with your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, oh, that we might see some good. Lift up the light of thy countenance upon us, O Lord. Thou hast put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For thy, thou alone, O Lord, makest me dwell in safety. Thank you. So I hope you can see there that the, a wise thought is an evening song. It's about lying down and uh, going to sleep. Um, before we uh, do anything else, can you find any uh, parallels or any connections to other parts of scripture in this psalm from what we just read? Is the be angry and do not sin uh, quoted in oh, that was that? The answer is yes. Can you remember where? St. James? No. Or Jude? No. Uh, Ephesians. Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. The Be angry and do not sin is quoted in Ephesians. Uh, very good. And we'll, we, we'll, we'll, when we come to that verse, we will look at how it's used by Paul in that letter. That was the easy one. There's a harder one, a uh, slightly harder one. Uh, but one that you will probably know better or more familiar with. Is it verse five? Tell me what offer, you think. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. That's a theme that we hear in a lot of Psalms. It's very common. And, and for example, Psalm 51 uh, kind of has a, a similar sort of idea. You know, the, first, the sacrifice of God, a broken spirit, broken tragical. And then once you have that broken, then you will offer, a sacrifice will be offered, yes? But if you look at uh, the end of verse 1 and the end of verse 6, so the last sentence of verse 1 and the last uh, second sentence of verse 6, Be gracious to me, lift up your count, light of your face. Or if we say light of your countenance. Ring any bells? It's the ironic blessing, the blessing at the end of the service that we have at the very end of the service. Lord, bless oh, thee and yes. keep you. Love makes face to shine up, make his oh, face yes. to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Oh, so yes. it's the second, the second stanza, if you like, of the ironic blessing. And the ironic blessing, which is from number six, and of number six, is the blessing that the priests are to bless the people of Israel with by, by placing the name of the Lord upon them. We'll come back to that as well a little bit more when we think about what that tells us in this context as a psalm of David. Good. So it is, uh, first of all, it is a psalm uh, that is to the choir master director of music 
uh, and to be played with string instruments. <clears throat> and this is Psalm of David. That's the heading in the uh, Hebrew text, and uh, and the that's verse one. The heading always is verse one. Was it harps they played in those days? Any stringed instruments. Uh, so they're they're translated sometimes harps, sometimes lyres, but they also might have been bowed string instruments uh, as well. Um, we don't we don't really know uh, very much. I mean, there is an instrument you can now buy. Uh, uh, which is called a harp, kind of like a dead harp of David, but it's not based on any information in the Bible that will tell you that David would have played a harp like that. The tiny ones, weren't they? Or ones? They were made of wood, which means that none, none survive from 1000 BC. No. Yes. Um, so it begins with a... Well, it's not a complaint, is it, first one? It's rather, it's an entreaty. The um, psalmist David, he calls to God. And there are three commands, if you like, or imperatives, three, three uh, entreaties in that first verse. Answer me, be gracious to me, hear my prayer. Those are the three things. Answer, be gracious, hear. Now, when it, that that he calls those three things, answer me, be gracious to me, hear my prayer. What what do what's the um, the theme, if you like? What do those have in common? What what is the uh, what what is David's business in this in this verse? What is, what is he uh, turning to God for? Information on how to live. Maybe saying sorry. But something's is Why do you think that? Um, well, he's saying that he's given him room when he was in distress. Mm. And the fact that he's asking for graciousness and to be heard mm. seems to suggest he's seeking some form of um, consolation. Really, he is seeking for consolation. I don't think he's asking for forgiveness, though, because the oh. issue in this psalm isn't David's own faults. Oh. The issue is enemies, external human enemies. Or human opponents. If he says, answer me, then he's asked a question before. Yeah, so either that or he's he's kind of, um, either that or he's saying that now that I'm calling to you, answer me. But he's calling, he's, he's calling to God for a response. And the response is he's calling for is a gracious one. Uh, <clears throat> um, and he calls him the God of my righteousness. Uh, which is a sort of very Hebrew, Hebrew way of saying God of my righteousness, just like we have uh, just before we had um, in verse in chapter uh, Psalm 3, verse 4, we said, he answered me from his holy hill. The Hebrew there actually is the hill of his holiness. So God of my righteousness can mean two things. It could be literally God of my righteousness in the sense that God who's the source of my righteousness, or it could actually mean my righteous God. Now, of course, there is there's very little difference between those two because our righteousness is also from God. But he's 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 appealing to God's righteousness. And given that we've just had Psalm 2, now obviously we, we're not suggesting that David kind of uh, has has had Psalms 1 and 2 and said, Oh, now we're here, we've got to Psalm 4 now. Yeah, you know, that's obviously not the narrative of David's life, but the knowledge that God has given. Uh, David, these promises, made all these promises. 
And the promise to David specifically was that what uh, was God's blessing, uh, which will be seen in the permanence uh, and stability of his throne. And now David's on the run. And so calling to God of my righteousness, he's appealing to what? To He's appealing to God's promises. And so this is the first very important point that I'd like to draw out of this. Even when David is in trouble and he seems that his enemies are, are, uh, are, are winning, even when he's if like in a situation that calls for a complaint, his response is to turn to God. So when it seems that God is far away or that God's promises are not currently being fulfilled but something else is happening, his first thing is to turn to God and to appeal to his righteousness. Um, <clears throat> that is to say, when we say God is righteous, we're saying that God is just, he is true. That the, um, the word for righteousness, uh, it's kind of very mundane roots are in, or the earliest, uh, earliest inscription outside the Bible, earliest kind of surviving text to do, which has uses uh, this word righteousness, actually comes from uh, some weights and measures that were found by archaeologists in the ground. And they were certified as being righteous. My collection is part of my right. Yes. Mm. I'll come to that in just a moment. Yes, yes. The As, right way or yeah, I'll come to that in just a moment. Oh, right. But the, the idea of a righteous measure or righteous mm. weight is that it says two pounds and it actually is yes. two pounds. It says a pint and it is a pint. Mm. <laughs> so that it, it doesn't lie. It doesn't, it doesn't tell you something that isn't true. It's not deceptive. And so calling God, God of my righteousness or God calling God righteous to say what he says, he says this and he does this. His, you know, his words and his actions they match together. His promises and the fulfillment of those promises are the set one and the same. There is no deception along the way. There's no deviation. Now that then gets expanded, of course, in meaning far, far beyond just, you know, that kind of, uh, and so it comes to mean justice or right. So it can mean, if we, we could say God of my right, in that sense, in other words, that it is from God that, uh, that I expect justice. Yeah. Or it can, as I said, it can mean simply to refer to God's own righteousness, not that, uh, not my rights, but God's truthfulness. But those two things belong together because God is the one who has made the promises in the first instance. And this is really important. Um, th this kind of becomes the thing. This is the the theme, the, the the thread that runs through the whole letter to the Romans is that God is righteous, and He remains righteous regardless of what, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. So the, the big question of why do you don't, if, if, if Jesus came to be the Messiah, the Christ, Savior of Israel, why is it that the majority of Israel have rejected him and don't believe in him? Has God not kept his promises? And Paul's gospel is no, God remains righteous. Or if Christians look at their circumstances like Romans 8, they're suffering. And they, they seem to be not to be enjoying God's blessing, but rather hardship. This is both in chapter five and chapter eight. And then God remains righteous. So it's this righteousness of God, which is therefore, therefore also my hope, because then when it comes to my sins, God remains righteous, not in the manner of exacting justice for my sins, but Christ 
is the righteousness of God. And in his righteousness, which precedes my sins, God has given Christ to take away my sins. So we are now justified. That is to me, declared righteous. I'm declared righteous through faith in Christ because God is righteous. So it's the whole, the, the, the center and the ground of everything is the, is, is the, is the immovable, unshakable, entirely uh, untrustworthy righteousness of God that God remains true. And therefore, I also, I will receive my right in the end. It's like what we've been learning in our Bible study in Revelation. You know, we, we may have to wait for the, the ultimate justice, but it will come. And the ultimate justice is the redemption of those who have the, who have, who have marked by the uh, mark of God and the Lamb. And he already declares, you know, you have given me relief when I was in distress. And very literally, he says, you have given me room when I was being squeezed. So this idea of this affliction is like, you know, imagine that you're a kind of, you're being squeezed or, or you know, uh, uh, or squashed or, or you're being, um, so, um, you know, like, like you might sometimes do, you know, you know, when you're being tortured and you're just kind of being, you know, you're, you're being weighed down and then God creates room. God has given us a space, a space and room. In other words, relief in distress. He has already done this. We know this because if you think of the story of David, David and Saul, you know, they came very close to, to, to perishing at the hands of Saul. And, and even though it seemed like he was being squeezed out of, of space, God made, made room for him. And so on the basis of his past actions, he says, be gracious to me. Um, and this, uh, <clears throat> uh, the, this uh, graciousness, um, is, 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 is translated into the Greek as, as sort of be compassionate. So this graciousness of God is to say that God, God will give to him what he needs. Be favorable to me, if you like. So that's the that's the heading. That's the kind of the the the, the top line of the psalm that sets the the tone. This is what we are what 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 the topic is, and then comes the actual complaint, which is not against God. It is actually against uh, about God concerning people. How long shall my honor be turned into shame? So again, in the historical circumstances, David, the king of Israel, is now a fugitive. And he's, he, he has lost his honor and his glory. And in fact, we know what Absalom, one of the first things that Absalom does when he goes to, uh, takes over Jerusalem, David has left 10 concubines to look after the palace. And Absalom takes them, sets up a tent on the roof of his house so that everybody can see. And he lays, uh, and, he, and he lies down with his concubines. Come and say, I have taken possession of my father's house by taking possession of his concubines. So he disgraces, he brings, brings David's honor into disgrace and into shame. And of course, in shame and dis shame and honor are the kind of the, the, the major currency of, of um, <clears throat> social relations in that world. If you have, if you lose your honor, you lose everything. How does, how, in here it says, a little three and it says, all men of rank, how does, is he talking to his army? Uh, sorry, where are we? Uh, chapter two, two, O men, 
how long shall my honour? Oh, and I it's see. It's got a little three and it says, of men of rank, which would mean... Um, well, it's, it's... It's a bit odd. Well, it, it means, it doesn't mean army rank, it just means the people, if you think of it like a class society where you've got uh, people who are in positions of honour and influence. Mm. That's what it means. So, like if you're in, I don't know, 17th century England, men of rank would be the aristocracy. Oh, I see. That. Yeah. But here yeah, it's it's um, literally just meant sons of men. Uh-huh. Oh, son, sons of men. Um. So he's now complaining. He's, he's, he has been stripped of his honour. And how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Now, what's a vain word? Where he's been boasting. Not vain in that sense. Mm. When, when the Ecclesiastes says vanity of vanity is always vanity, yeah. meaning what? Emptiness, sort of nothing, Empty. nothing of value. Exactly, yes, it's emptiness or uh, something that has no value oh. at all. Mm-hmm. So vain words are empty words, mm-hmm. uh, words that are just sounds, yeah. but don't actually stand for substance. In other words, uh, it's, it's a synonym for lies. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> so we've got this, you know, we talked about this last week, the, kind of the, the, the typical feature of Hebrew poetry is that you repeat things. It's called parallelism. Vain words, lies. How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Um, and now, so he's complaining against them that, that he's being the truth. You know, there's a there are lies and untruths and and empty words that are being railed against him. And he turns against them his confidence and his hope. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. So say, you think you're winning. I've got God on my side. Yeah. And so you, that, that's the set, set up. So even in his complaint, even in his trouble, he doesn't see the outcome of his trouble. He's calling for help, but he already, he turns against his enemies and says, uh, God is on my side. Mm-hmm. And he hears when I call to him. Now, there's a little bit of... <coughs> A uh, little, little bit of linguistic difficulty in verse uh, three. Uh, first of all, well, not difficulty, but uh, uh, just uh, importance of uh, understanding rightly what's being said. So, first of all, it said to know that the uh, Lord has set apart the godly for Himself. And again, the word "godly" here is an English word that has the word "God" in it, translating a Hebrew word that does have does not have the word "God" in it. We had this before when we were looking at uh, some of the New Testament uh, writings as well, where we have godliness, not referring to. Uh, and and do you remember what that, what the word was? I said whenever you see godly, what what's the other word they should be thinking of? Anyone remember? Right, pious. Oh, pious. It it's actually the Hebrew word has its root meaning in kindness. So the word that sometimes translates is loving kindness yeah. or steadfast love is chesed and a godly person is chasid. So somebody who has chesed. You know, so so uh, the idea, uh, the, the origin of the word is in that, but the idea is, is really that you're a pious person. 
a devout person. In other words, one who is dedicated to the will of God as opposed to the lies and empty words of men. Um, <clears throat> there is another way of translating this. Um, and some uh, there are one or two uh, English translations that do this and some other languages, but um, it's sometimes translated as not know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself, but um, they know that God is uh, wonderful uh, towards his uh, pious ones. Um, I won't go into why, why that is. All, all our translations have kind of say, know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Um, we'll stick with that. Um, but this idea, and the key idea there again is, the work, work of God. So he doesn't say, I'm, I'm confident because I know that God likes people like me. What's the key action? What's the, what's the ground of confidence in verse 3? Yes. Before that. Why, why, does, why is he confident that God will hear him? Why is he so confident that God will hear him in the same verse? It's the Lord himself who has set him apart, is mm. his word. The Lord has set mm. apart the godly for himself. And the godly is a, um, is a singular, not the godly people, but the godly one. Mm -hmm. The Lord has set apart. Now, it's not the same word as the word for holy, but that's what holiness means, mm -hmm. is that where God sets them apart. So God has, if you like, specifically selected the pious one, the devout one, for himself. So the ground is God's prior action. And again, this is really fundamental throughout the whole Bible. Why does, you know, why is Abraham blessed? Why is Isaac blessed? Why is Jacob blessed? Why are the sons of Jacob blessed? Why are their offspring blessed? Because God has taken them, set them apart from others. He has called them. He has set them aside for himself. That you're mine. And this is later on, much later on in Israel's history, in Isaiah, chapter, uh, in, in the, uh, the middle part, part of Isaiah, sort of chapter 40 onwards. This repetition, you know, repeated, I think, that I have called you, you are mine. Um, <clears throat> which is why, again, in conflict, we, we pray from another side, you know, keep me as the apple of your eye. You know, that God, this, this idea that God, Takes a, uh, takes a special interest and concern in us because he has chosen or selected. And God has chosen Israel, and out of Israel, God has chosen David. Now, this is where we begin to see how this whole thing points to Jesus. This psalm points to Jesus. Because David was actually in trouble partly in fulfillment of God's prophecy against him. If you remember, what is, if you, say, ask, if you ask yourself, why was Absalom successful against David at all? Why did Absalom rise against David? Why was he very nearly successful? Why did David come within an inch of losing the kingdom and, and his life probably? Why did it all happen in the first instance? And the one word answer is, Bathsheba. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, uh, not meaning that it's Bathsheba's fault, but because of what David did mm -hmm. to Bathsheba and Uriah. Mm -hmm. And 
it's as a consequence of that that God allowed these things to happen. So God made this promise, but he made, you know, he, he in, in, in a sense, he allowed David to be, to squeal and to suffer these things because of his own sin. So David was godly, devout, pious, but far from perfectly so. But this is where we go back to verse one. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And then a bit later, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord, which take us right back to the ironic benediction. As I said, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord will make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now, it's the placing of the name of God upon the people of God. That blessing. Specifically God's Lord says, thus they shall they place my name upon them, Israel. And it's a threefold benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. <clears throat> now, when we meditate on that reality, when we think about that reality, we've got threefold blessing with three different uh, it's like three pairs of particular blessings. Bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And we say, this is the name of the Lord being placed, uh, a name of God being placed upon the people of Israel. And we look at that, then connect that to the Lord setting apart the pious or faithful or the, uh, the, the godly one for himself. We shouldn't find it difficult to see how this all points actually to Jesus, who is the godly one, the one that God has set apart for himself. He is entirely godly, entirely devout and pious. Um, and the second, it, uh, he and, and we know that, you know, David didn't have this detailed knowledge that we have been given in script, through scripture, but Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, and he is the face of God for us. You know, when we look into the face of Jesus, who is, scripture says, the image of the invisible God, he's the one who Moses, when Moses is asked to see God's face and God says, you cannot see my face, and he gets to see that. The, the back of God as the glory of God passes by, but on the Mount of Transfiguration, Mo Moses looks into the face of Jesus on, its, on another mount. So he is the face of God, and he is the one who ultimately brings us the grace of God by his innocent life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection. And so when we say the Lord lift up his countenance, of, uh, sorry, um, a blessing people who make Face to make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. It's another way of saying the Lord give you Jesus. Because when the shy face, face of Jesus shines, and we think of the shining face of Jesus, again, the transfiguration and then the glorious Jesus in the book of Revelation. Uh, <clears throat> uh, so much so that we're told that in new new uh, creation, there'll be no sun because uh God, you know, the, we're in the presence of God. That's enough light for us there. 
that we are looking at <clears throat> the setting apart of the divine, of the pious, of the godly for himself is being done in Jesus. And of course, God himself has taken us and chosen us and set us apart, each of us individually and the whole church collectively. So when we are, and, and here we come right back to baptism yet again, what happens in our baptism? We are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And by that, again, we are, there's that triple name of God, which in the blessing is the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, and now it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. to whom the angels sing all the seraphim sing, holy, holy, holy. That name is placed on us, and we are set apart. And therefore, this what this te what what we when we tease these things out and, and, and look at look at them <clears throat> in context, say, just like for David here, for us even more. In the second David, in the perfect David, the true king of Israel, king uh, of whom David was only a forerunner, the true anointed one, Jesus, the ground of our confidence is in, in God's grace and his blessing and his protection and his care, including against our enemies, is that God has set us apart for himself in Christ. And therefore, all the shame that the world might heap on us to deprive us of our honor because of our confession of the truth of, of God, because of our faithfulness to God, our, our, our godliness, is an attempt to take turn our honor into shame, but it will fail. And the world, world loves lies instead of the truth, but they will be exposed as lies. And to remember what Satan means, the word Satan. He's the accuser, and the devil means the slanderer. So he makes false accusations against us. He says to you, your sins count against you, or he says things like, your sins don't matter, it's fine. He lies, he's a liar, the father of lies. And the question again is to say, well, how long shall my honor be turning to shame? How long will you love vain words to seek after lies? You can say that against the world. You can say that against Satan. But know that the Lord, and remember the Lord here is in capital, all capitals meaning God. More specifically, Lord? Yahweh. Well, yeah, Yahweh is just the name of God. Yahweh has set apart the godly for himself, the pious for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. And we as Christians, we know that God hears our prayers because he tells us he will. He tells us he will, <laughs> specifically when we pray how? Mm -hmm. In Jesus' name. Mm -hmm. We ask anything in his name, he will grant it to us. So this whole psalm actually is fulfilled and then re-energized, if you like, given a whole new depth of meaning when we read it in the knowledge of the son of David, who is Jesus. So that's the, that's, that's the confidence, that's both the complaint and the confidence. So we see both the present distress and the confidence that it will, will be resolved. But the question, of course, is how long 
answer me, be gracious to me, hear my prayers. He's sort of impatient, if you like, awaiting, turning to God and appealing to his promises. Now we have a change of voice. It's like um, a, a second person comes to speak, and it's all written by David, but it's all like a, 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 a voice outside the sufferer now addresses the sufferer with these words. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. Now, notice that in your own hearts. So this is now no longer just a single sufferer, but all who are who find themselves in this situation. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Now, first thing is, um, do all our Bibles say in verse uh, 4, be angry and do not sin? Mine does. Yeah? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> there are some Bible translations that don't. Now, the... Uh, the Verb that is translated to be angry literally is tremble. And it's sometimes used in the Old Testament, often used in the Old Testament as a sin, as an expression not for anger, but for fear. Fear and trembling. Okay. Um, I'm agitated and down, haven't they? The agitated on is, is fear for some reason with a little number four. A footnote, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, which is an it is it's an attempt to render in kind of an English English equivalent trembling in in, in Hebrew English. If you say someone's agitated, literally yeah. means you're you know you're moving them about like a, like an old washing machine. Yeah. Um, but it expresses an emotional state. So literally, you could translate you know, tremble, and that could be with fear, but it could also mean with anger or agitation. Now the Greek again, the Greek Old Testament Septuagint translated as "angry." Be not, you know, be angry, mm -hmm. but do not sin. And that's the verse that gets then. Oh, that's the version then that gets quoted by Paul in Ephesians uh, chapter four. Um, <clears throat> in a sense, it doesn't. It it the 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 word itself covers a a multitude of emotional states, and and we don't necessarily have to. Uh, uh, we don't have to necessarily kind of pin our cars to the mast, even those quoted in the New Testament as be angry, do not sin, because that Paul uses it for that particular argument <coughs> doesn't mean that all other meanings become invalid, uh, which is why I quite like that footnote version, be agitated and do not sin. So it's saying, it's now addressing the, the, the uh, if you like, the, the, the psalmist who's suffering the injustice of his enemies and saying, fine, be agitated, be angry, be, be, you know, tremble, be, be, be shaken, but do not sin. What's the counsel there? Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So what's the solution to the problem of the enemies? If you kind of summarize those two verses, uh, four and five, when when things you know, when you look at you look out the window, look at you know, look at your newspaper or your or a news website or the 
or the TV or whatever, and you look at the world and say, there's all this terrible injustice and 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 the suffering of of the uh, of the innocent and the vicissitudes of of the Christian Church in many places and and the kind of way in which the gospel seems to be marching backwards in this land and ungodliness is is right you know, and paganism is raising his head. What's the solution? According to verses Let four, them live sin in for joy right so mm-hmm. yes so so what what where do we turn to therefore god we turn to god we turn to god yeah. we keep silent mm-hmm. yeah. we keep silent right ponder in your heart own hearts on your bed because he knows what's in your heart and so there are two things and say and continue to worship offer right mm-hmm. sacrifices and put your trust in the lord so continue to put it in kind of uh, Sunday schoolish simple terms, say your prayers, meditate on God's word, go to church and trust God. Rather than give vent to your anger against your enemies. Now let's look at Ephesians 4, um, which is uh, part of a long section in, uh, in Ephesians where Paul talks about how the Christians and the Christian church, the congregation, ought to live amongst themselves. And we won't read the whole thing because it takes up all of chapters 4, 5, and 6, essentially. But the key theme is, first of all, if you look at chapter 4, verse 17, page 1193, verse 1. Verse 17, Carol, could you read that for us? Just verse 17. Now this I affirm and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Thank you. What's futility? Just uh, no purpose. Yes. So it's another way of saying vanity. Mm. Vain words. Futility. Kind of the the, the purposes, emptiness, uselessness. Um of their minds, so that's the key idea. We we must not walk in that. Our minds not be must not be full of empty things, nothingnesses. Um, but in instead, we should verse twenty two, be renewed in the spirit of our minds, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And this is again, this is baptismal language. And so verse 25, have you found it, Rosemary? Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Oh, that's right. Four. Could you read verses 25 to 27? Be angry and do not sin. 25. Oh, Beginning of the paragraph. Oh, there it is. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbour. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Thank you. So there you see the quotation from this psalm. And again, it's do not let the sun go down on your anger. It's the kind of, you can see that Paul's remembering this is an evening psalm. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, at, the, at the end of the day, <clears throat> what's the concern? Put away falsehood, speak the truth. Um, 
how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? So we, as God's people, live by true words. Even later on in, in chapter six, the part, um, the part of the armor of God is the belt of truth. And it says, be angry and do not sin. Now, what's that? What does it mean to say, be angry and do not sin? It, obviously, he's not commanded to be angry. Rather, how, how, it kind of saying, it's almost like saying, when you are angry, be angry. You know, when there's cause for anger, but do not sin. In other words, be only angry with yourself. Not you could be angry with yourself sinfully as well. Hmm. So what what does it mean to be angry and not sin? Give me an example of somebody in the Bible who's angry and did not sin. Jesus. Jesus when? The overturning of the table. Right. So Jesus was angry. Why was he angry? Because what made him angry? Things are going wrong. People doing things in the wrong place. Selling wrong things. Right. Selling selling money. Yeah. So that was the cause. So what? Why did that make him angry? Because it was God's house, and that shouldn't go on in God's house. Right. So, in other words, he was angry at sin. Yeah. Um, now, God is angry uh, from time to time. <laughs> Ask the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, yeah. or the people of the time of Noah. God, mm. too, is angry. What is God angry at? Sin. Sin and unrighteousness. God is angry at unbelief. God is angry when Israel do not put their trust in him, but they put their trust in princes or in, in political alliances or false gods. God is angry when, <clears throat> when the uh, rich oppress the poor and the powerful oppress the weak. And immorality. Um, all, of all kinds. Mm. Um, which is why, if you look at, uh, we don't need to turn to it, but another psalm um, that we sometimes uh, sing is Psalm 146. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fathers, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. And so God has a real concern for righteousness and justice and for truth and therefore for right faith. And when these are missing, God is angry. So when he says, be angry and do not sin, what are we being taught? Not to let sin get the better of us, if mm. possible. <laughs> well, yes. So first of all, in our anger, not yeah, to... Not. No, when does it? When when might our anger be sinful? When you've seen other people sin? When, well, why would that make it us sinful in being angry at that? When, when, when will we sin in our anger? If we retaliate against something. Why is that sinful? Um... Because that's not what God wants us to do. Why not? I'm going to, I'm drilling down now. Because he said he will um, put right the injustices. He will rain down vengeance on people. It's not our job. Yeah, vengeance belongs to the Lord, not to us. Um, vengeance belongs to the Lord and not to us. And therefore we do not, if we start taking vengeance, because then we are overtaking a, taking over from God. Yeah. Our anger becomes sinful when it is direct, when it is not uh, if you like, um, when we're not angry with God, but either against him or apart from him. So when our anger is self-righteousness over against other people, when we take over God's role in judgment. And so be angry and do not sin. 
if you uh, if you are being oppressed like David was being oppressed, and you lay God aside and you say, "Right, I'm going to sort this out. I'm going to," and and your and and therefore you uh, your energies are turned against your neighbor as you against them, rather than your aligning your cause with God. Mm-hmm. That's when it becomes sin. You are not the center of God's universe. God is. And when you are being wronged, it's fine to be angry about that, but then that, that's the sort of anger that leads you not in animosity and hostility towards other people and fighting for your cause on your own, but rather now you turn to God. Not being angry at sin is actually a sin. If we don't, in, in the sense, I don't mean the emotion, but rather the judgment. So when we see unrighteousness and injustice, if you see... I mean, I, I just uh, <clears throat> heard this morning there's a, uh, a young woman in her 30s uh, in Holland who used to represent her country in, a, in sport, I think hockey, international hockey or something like that. After her retirement, from, she suffered with uh, depression, um, really severe depression. And on those grounds, she applied for and was granted the right to die. And she has just died at the hands of doctors who when she was you know came across a young woman suffering with severe de- uh, a severe dis- um, um, depression and wanted to die instead of helping her they said okay fine we'll let you die and help you die now if that doesn't make us angry there's something wrong with it we should be you know this is you know just a, a one example just today Again, there are calls being made in this country to allow that sort of thing to happen in this yeah, country. And news, yeah. yeah, we must, you know, we, we should be filled with righteous anger. Let's say, recognize, call it, recognize it as evil, call it as evil. But then the answer is, what do we do about this? You know, if I give another example, there is, you know, we, we should be permanently and constantly upset and angry at the murdering of the unborn, innocent unborn, in this country and other places. Now, there have been in other countries people who've been so angry about it that they started bombing abortion clinics. Now, that's anger with sin. But rather, what do we do? We do what we, what we can do within the bounds of God's law. We pray and we, we uh, you know, do what we can when we can, but entrust the matter to the Lord above all. So be angry and do not sin. And Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. If you are angry, because, you know, who's the first person to get angry in the Bible? The very first person to get angry in the Bible? Adam? No. Cain? Cain. Cain was angry. Why was Cain angry? Because he was envious. Mm -hmm. He was jealous of his brother. Um, And and God God warned him. Sin is crouching at the door. Mm -hmm. And tells Cain to master it. And so we mustn't ever go to bed in a state of anger. Because, well, first of all, that means that he has no control over us rather than it being godly. And secondly, because one of the one of the features of godly anger is, is that you retain self-control. Mm. 
gift of the Holy Spirit, self-control. If you've lost self-control and you've been mastered by your anger, then you you have lost, you know, you that is not godly anger anymore. But also because, as, I, as I'm fond of saying, as you know, every time we go to bed, that's our last known opportunity to be awake. Mm. And so we must, you know, if we're angry with one another, we must be reconciled because there's, you know, it'd be a terrible thing if you have not given the opportunity to be reconciled. So be angry and do not sin. But says, you know, in, in the end, be silent. You be silent. Let God act. So no ranting, no raving, no taking matters into your own hand. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So continue to entrust yourself to God, worship him, pray, meditate on his word. There are many who say, verse uh, 6, who will show us some good? Now, Hebrew doesn't have quotation marks, by the way. So we do have a disagreement between versions. Where does the quotation end? So some Bibles say, who will, there are many who say, who will show us some good? End quotation. And then their answer is, Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Others will have the whole verse as quotation. Who, many who say, who will show us some good, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. But what is, what, what's that, oh, that verse saying? It's not just me. You know, it's not just you. If you think you are, you're the only one who is suffering. No, no, no. There are many who say, who will show us some good. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And again, the light of your face. Ultimately, that's the light that shines from the face of Jesus. So it's a prayer, even though David wouldn't have been able to articulate this at the time, because he didn't know the details yet, but we know what we're really praying for is that we continue to see the face of Jesus. We look, continue to look to him, because when we look to the face of Jesus, we see the end of unrighteousness in the cross of Jesus. We see the end of injustice, and we see the coming deliverance and redemption of God's people and the permanent, immovable grace and favor of God in the face of Jesus. And nowhere else. That's the only place where we'll see it. And so we pray for that. Lift up your light from your face upon us, O Lord. And this is why it's such a wonderful thing to go leave church with this blessing. The Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. It's the permanent presence of Jesus, not just in our lives from God's perspective, but also in our lives from our perspective, that we are mindful of him, mindful of the fact that all things, you know, to, the famous line from Julian and Norwich, you know, um, all things, all things shall be on all manner of things shall be well. Why? Because in Jesus, all things are being reconciled. And the righteousness and justice of God are being worked out by him. And here's that wonderful, <clears throat> uh, wonderful prayer. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when they grain and wine abound. So when they have plenty of everything, you know, they, they are rich, they are satisfied, they're full, and they've got so much wine that they can make themselves merry till, uh, till next year. You think, all is well. Well, you have put more joy in my heart than all the riches of the world. Blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the earth. Because Christ, you know, ultimately all things belong to God. All things belong to his Messiah, to Christ, to Jesus. And so in him, we have all the riches that there are, and far more than that, more, more than the world can give. 
in God and his word, God in his promise, God in his presence, God in his gifts, in his grace, in his favor, we have more joy than the world can ever accumulate. And therefore also, whatever sorrows the world brings about will be far outweighed ultimately by the joys of God's kingdom. Which is why Paul says, doesn't say, be joyful. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And so the, the voice of the comforter, if you like, concludes with that, with that prayer or praise. So we've had the complaint voice of David, and then we had the second voice of the comforter. And think of, compare this with the like, book of Job, where, you know, Job is, is, is sort of complaining to God and his comforters come and they say, it's all your fault. It's all your fault. Get on your knees and sort it out. And God takes a rather dim view. He takes a somewhat dim view of the complaint, but he takes a much dimmer view of the comforters of the of those who claim to speak for him. Whereas here we have righteous spokesperson said, trust yourself, entrust yourself to the Lord. You just continue to do your thing. You just continue to worship rightly. You continue to pray and leave it with God. And he will, he will give you joy. And then the voice returns, the first voice, last verse. David concludes this, okay, in peace. And again, that's the third third uh, reference to the blessing, ironic blessing, peace, give you peace. In peace, shalom, I will both lie, both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That is the voice of faith. And you can say that. When you're David running away from Absalom, you can say that when you go to bed at the end of a Tuesday night uh, or when you lie down on your deathbed, you know, lie down never to get up again. In peace, I'll both lie down and sleep. For you alone, you alone, you only, no one but you, Lord Yahweh, make me do any safety. No, which is to say both that no one else can but also that you will. No one than God, no, no one else than God can do this, but God will do it. You do it, and it's nobody else's work. It's not me who's done it, it's not the government, it's not the police or the army or, or any, any other such thing. It's not democracy or Western values. It's the Lord alone. So if there are other things that contribute to it, so we, we can, you know, every night we go to bed and we don't have to worry about missiles flying in or drones. We don't have to worry about terrorists bursting in through our doors or those hunting terrorists bursting through our doors where we are. We go to bed and we've got a pretty good expectation that in the morning the heating will come on and there'll be hot water in the tap and that we will still be in our beds and our houses will be sound and the windows will be unbroken and then we'll just go about our days and we have breakfast, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I said, well, aren't we lucky? So no, 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 no. This is the work of God, mm -hmm. which is why, we, you know, when we say pray the, uh, the um, Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, mm -hmm. <clears throat> the catechism reminds us exactly what it is that we are praying for. This is the bit that uh, when youngsters are told to memorize the catechism, they always tremble at this petition. What is meant by daily bread? Everything that belongs to the support and needs of the body, such as food, drink, clothing, shoes, house, property, land, animals, money, goods, 
Devout spouse, devout children, devout workers, devout and faithful rulers, good government, good weather, peace, health, discipline, honor, good friends, faithful neighbors, and other such things. Mm -hmm. These are all things that God gives to us. So why are we so fortunate? Think of we're going to bed in Gaza. Mm -hmm. Think of going to bed in, in eastern Ukraine. Think of going to bed in places where these things are not like this. Why is it that, what is it we have here that they don't have? Well, God has granted us. Why us and not them? I don't know. But let's thank him for it while it lasts. He has granted us good government. And if you think that our government is not very good, well, I can tell you it can be a whole lot worse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and if you don't believe me, just go and look at how Hamas is running Gaza. Mm -hmm. Okay. Good government. Good weather. We don't have a drought. We certainly don't have a drought. Nor is it flooded like Zambia is at the moment. It's flooded and they're, you know, they're, their crops are just being washed away in Zambia. Mm -hmm. um, good weather. Good government. Peace. Health. Discipline, honor, good friends, faithfulness. We have all these things. God alone can give, give gives these things to us. And therefore, what is the proper response of the godly one, of the pious one? Thanks. Thanksgiving. Yeah. Thanksgiving. And it is, it is, and Thanksgiving is one of those, one of those things that this psalm has done. What does this psalm do? The psalmist in this, if you go, if you just follow the, the short trip from verse one to verse eight, the psalmist David has spoken himself into a peace, state of peaceful trust in God. Mm -hmm. You know, he begins with, answer me, be gracious to me, hear me. Mm -hmm. And now he says, he's spoken himself by, by verse 8, he said, in peace I will both lie down. So the Lord alone, God alone who makes me dwell in safety. Mm -hmm. And this is what faith does again. Faith exercises itself by speaking, speaking true words. So when we give thanks, as I've as I've been re recently uh, repeatedly saying, when we give thanks, we are calling to mind what God has given to us. And when we give, when we call to mind what God has given to us, it puts us in mind, us in mind of God's faithfulness and goodness, which increases our faith. And then faith then recognizes as being a gift of God, and therefore we give thanks. And it's a virtuous cycle. It's like an upward spiral of thanksgiving leading to strengthening of faith, which leads to greater thanksgiving, which is, and so our faith, by giving thanks, we are mindful of God. And so it's a really good exercise in our prayers to try and list in, list in, list in our minds things to give thanks for. Because we are all by nature, some of us more than others, but we are all by nature pessimistic. You know, the humans, humans for most of history have lived in amongst great dangers. And you have to be mindful of all the things that could go wrong, because there are plenty of them. You have to be mindful of not getting, not scratching yourself on a rusty nail, because that could kill you. You must be mindful of all the beasts that, you know, the lions or the ostriches or the, or the wolves or the bears or whatever. You know, there's so many dangers. So you have to constantly be mindful of them. And because you're, whatever you're mindful of is what you're concentrating on, that's where your mind dwells. But that can very quickly lead you to thinking you're, you're all alone and, and life is terrible. Whereas, in fact, our lives are full of blessings. You know, you're looking out for wolves and bears with a functioning pair of eyes. But you take the eyes for granted <laughs> and, not, and forget to give thanks for them. And this is the great thing that uh, the, the Psalms teach us. 
you know, we sometimes if we're in anguish, well, let's let's talk this thing out. Let's just put this whole thing into perspective of God's promises in His Word, and you know, by do by simply by doing this, we speak ourselves into calm because it's not our words. It's not a it's not just a kind of form of self therapy. We're actually reminding ourselves of God's goodness and His promises. So it's a great psalm, like they all are. But there's a great psalm I think uh, uh, for teaching us trust and and what they call peaceful repose in in god's goodness and his faithfulness and if you were a monk or a nun in a monastery in the middle ages or uh, every night you would sing psalm 4 as part of your bedtime preparation in copy so any uh, final thoughts, comments, questions. I hope that's been helpful. So when we sing this on Sunday, I hope that it will be um, it will be helpful to you to at least recall some of these things. Yeah. Anyone, anything? No. In that case, let's close with prayer. Lord, we we thank you now. All the goodness uh, <clears throat> and your uh, all your goodness and all your gifts to us, which we enjoy day after day. Please forgive us that we take so much for granted and forget to give you thanks. Forgive us all all our fretfulness and our negativity, and teach us to keep our eyes firmly and permanently fixed on Jesus and your love for us in Him. That as His grace and his mercy shines into our lives we might be at peace trusting in your goodness and your guidance we pray that you would hasten his return and the end of all unrighteousness and the destruction of all that is evil so that your kingdom of righteousness might be revealed upon this dying and fallen world and while we wait for Jesus' coming, we pray that his light would shine ever more brightly into the lives of ever more people. Also here amongst us, please give us opportunities to share your love with others that they might come to know you through your son who loved us and gave himself up for us, that in him and his poverty we might have all your riches. So with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. <laughs>